Amen. Thank you, Sylvia. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, for what I believe will be the final time, at least in this sermon series. I will aim to conclude this portion of Paul's letter tonight by wrapping up this section on love. And we will do well to remember that this portion of Scripture is written within the context of a congregation that was fighting over spiritual gifts. They boasted about their gifts of knowledge and prophecy and tongues, and they equated spiritual maturity with these impressive gifts of knowledge and eloquence and discernment. But they had no idea that their use or their misuse of those impressive gifts, their use of them without love, actually turned them into noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. They were so proud of their teaching and their instruction and their doctrine and their knowledge All the while, they were actually demonstrating a lack of knowledge, a lack of maturity because of their lack of love. Paul would have them remember and have us remember that the mark of genuine spiritual maturity is not gifting, but love. And if I can prime the pump of application for us here at Morning View, what ought we to be warned against from this text? Well, I think... And one thing that parallels our congregation with Corinth is a subtle temptation towards boasting in our knowledge, our gifts of knowledge, our doctrine, our teaching. I think it's easy to boast in those things. We may believe that the miraculous spiritual gifts of revelation have ceased, but we can still certainly be guilty of boasting in our clarity, our teaching, our teachers, and do so without love at all. It's easy to joke about or see as contemptible, disdain those other people out there that don't have their theological ducks in a row. That's very easy to do. To joke about the apparent immaturity we see elsewhere. But when we do, we say, we we demonstrate that we're no different than the Corinthians. We're boasting about knowledge while demonstrating a clear lack of it. A lack of love. We can boast about our maturity, our doctrinal awareness, while simultaneously demonstrating a lack of both of those things, love and awareness. And so I want us to remember that ancient Corinth is not nearly as far away from Montgomery as we might think. So with that kind of priming of the pump done, let's remind ourselves what Paul says in chapter 13. Christ says to us, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now we know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to love, very simply. Help us to know what love is and to share it with others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our text from verse 8 to the end of the chapter begins with Paul's argument introduced. He introduces his argument and his thesis, if I may summarize it, is that love is superior to all the spiritual gifts and graces because it lasts forever. Love lasts forever. It outlasts all the other spiritual gifts, therefore it is superior. It never ends. That's the point of verse 8. Love never ends. Prophecies, they will pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. But love doesn't end, even though these three highlighted spiritual gifts will. Prophecies will no longer be needed once the things prophesied about have arrived. You don't need them anymore. Tongues will no longer be necessary when the fullness of divine revelation is present. And the gift of knowledge will no longer be required once divine revelation is in front of our eyes. Of course, Paul's not saying that all knowledge will pass away as if when the perfect comes, we all become ignorant idiots and no longer have any knowledge. That's not what he's saying. But rather the vehicle for divine knowledge, the spiritual gift of receiving, discerning, and proclaiming divine truth will no longer be required. Those three gifts will cease, Paul says, but love will not. Therefore, the implication is love is superior. It will remain. It's durable. It will continue to exist, continue to be exercised, continue to grow. Now, that's easy enough. That's fairly uncontroversial in verse 8. But let's move on to verse 9 and get into a little more disputed territory. Verse 9, we see Paul's argument explained. Paul's argument explained. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So Paul, why is love superior to these spiritual gifts of revelation? Well, not only will love last forever, unlike the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and tongues, but love is complete. Love is complete. The gifts of knowledge in this age are partial. They are incomplete, Paul says. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the incomplete will pass away. The partial will no longer be necessary. And more about this incompleteness in a moment. But now I'd like to think through probably the most disputed part of this passage. What is Paul referring to when he says the perfect? When the perfect comes, the partial passes away. When is that time? When does the perfect come? Well, there are all sorts of interpretations. The two most likely, in my estimation, either the perfect refers to the future completion of the New Testament, and the closing of the canon, the final inscripturation of divine truth, or the perfect refers to the second coming of Christ in the eternal state. Those are the two main options, the, the coming completion of the Bible or the return of Christ and the entrance of believers into the final state, the new heavens and the new earth. And so for those who believe that the perfect is the completion of the New Testament, which includes men of high regard like B.B. Warfield and uh, today's New Testament scholar like Richard Gaffin, 
It seems to me that they're trying very hard to defend the church against the error of continuationism, which is that the spiritual gifts of revelation continue today. Continuationists believe that prophecy in some way continues today. Gifts of tongues, gifts of knowledge, divine words of revelation continues. And so theologians like Warfield and Gaffin, they interpret this passage to say the gifts will continue until the New Testament is finished then the gifts will cease. That's the perfect. That's what they say. I'm sympathetic to their position, and I actually agree where they land on the ceasing, the stopping of revelatory gifts, as I preached in chapter 12 of this book. But I'm not convinced that here the perfect refers to the closing of the canon. And I say that for several reasons. If the If the perfect here refers to the closing of the canon, it's doubtful that the Corinthian believers hearing this letter would know what Paul was talking about, that they would have, they would understand his original meaning. Nothing else in this letter refers to some future point when scripture would stop and that the gifts would cease then and therefore the perfect has arrived. Rather, they would probably have heard the word perfect more like Jesus meant it in Matthew 5. He's talking about you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which refers to the spiritual and moral perfection of God's people in the final state. But the most compelling reason why I don't think the perfect here refers to the closing of the canon is found in verse 12. Not to jump the gun, but verse 12 says that when the perfect comes, we will see him face to face. Face to face. And the biblical writings are, in one sense, perfect. They reveal God to us, but they don't give us a face-to-face meeting with God. Scripture is clear in passages like 1 Peter 1.18 and 1 John 4 that one day we will see God face-to-face, but that is in the future. We will be perfected, but that day is not now. Instead, so I'm convinced that the majority position is correct, that the perfect here in this passage refers to the final state of the new heavens and the new earth, which is initiated by the second coming of Christ. Many scholars take that position, so that's not a novel interpretation. And I think it's the plain reading of the text. It's consistent with the rest of Paul's eschatology. The age of the revelatory gifts was back in Paul's day. They were partial, temporary. They were necessary for a season. Revelation in in that age, gifts of discernment and knowledge were all limited and finite. They They were hindered by sin and natural weakness. But when the perfect comes, we will see him face to face. Our knowledge will not be mediated by another. It will not be tainted by sin. It will not be corrupted. It will not be limited by our own natural weaknesses. And that describes the future. That that doesn't describe now. And I think that's exactly what Paul's illustrating in the next couple of verses. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul is equating the, the revelatory spiritual gifts, like tongues and prophecy, to speaking like a child, infantile babble. And surely the gifts were producing genuine revelation. God spoke through them, and that revelation was true and good and needful for the church in its infancy, but it was limited. It was partial. These prophecies and words of revelation and these tongues, they were like training wheels for the early church. Gifts of discernment and gifts of knowledge are are only necessary as long as The object of divine revelation is still distant and far. But we won't need them. 
when the object of divine revelation is in front of us face to face. That's the point of verse 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Saying now our knowledge is distant. It's mediated. It's like looking towards something really far away, looking through a telescope, trying to see something that's obscured a little bit by mist and fog and clouds. Reminds me of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is with the shepherds on the delectable mountains, and he's able to get a glimpse from the top of the delectable mountains of his journey's end, of his destination, the celestial city. He's able to see heaven. But he can only do it through looking through a telescope. And Bunyan says in the text that his vision of that heavenly city is slightly obscured because his hands are still shaky. His sins, his weaknesses make his vision of heaven unsteady. That's where we are in this age. We're we're given real revelation, true revelation. We're given a glimpse, but it's partial. It's shaky. We're, We're unable to hold our telescope steady. But when the perfect comes, we will no longer need a telescope. We won't be hindered by our vision of fog and the sin of weaknesses. Our knowledge won't be partial. We will know fully, even as we have been fully known. So let us consider the final statement of verse 12 for a moment. It's full of great encouragement if we would stop and linger there. Paul says, when the perfect comes, we shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. Which means that our knowledge then, when the perfect comes, will be as complete. It will be like God's knowledge of us now, which is a mind-blowing statement. How well does God know you? Scripture is clear that He knows your rising and your sleeping. He knows your coming and your going, what you're doing. He knows the hairs of your head. He knows the thoughts in your mind. He knows the intentions of the heart. He knows your ambitions, your goals, your dreams. He knows whom you will marry. He knows what your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren's names will be. In fact, He knew you before you were born. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. That's how thorough his knowledge is. And Paul says when the perfect comes, our knowledge will be like that. Not that we somehow become omniscient when we die, but the quality of our knowledge goes from that of a child, infantile, partial, weak, to mature. We, we go from getting a partial glimpse to full high-definition color. We go from seeing our spouse through a veil to seeing him face-to-face. And we won't talk to God from a distance either. We'll talk to Him like Moses did. That's, that's where this phrase, face-to-face, comes from. It was used in the Old Testament many times to talk about Moses speaking directly with God. But when we get to heaven, we'll have even better communion with God than Moses did. We'll have better knowledge than the Old Testament's greatest prophet. We'll speak to him face to face, and we will see him as he is because we will be made like him. Moses wasn't yet made like him. That's what John tells us. We will be like him face to face. Moses never had that. Not at the burning bush, not on the top of Mount Sinai, but we will be perfected. We'll be able to experience the fullness of knowledge and communion and fellowship that not even Moses had. 
And brothers and sisters, that's what awaits all of us who believe. And so let your thoughts linger on that. What will that be like? Think of the joy, the bliss, the love that will be experienced. That eternal communion with perfected knowledge. When you're discouraged, when you're despairing because of the imperfection of our knowledge in this life, remember what's to come. When you're frustrated because you're not quite sure what to do, what the wisest course of action will be, you're not able to really put all the pieces together or understand something, either because of natural weakness or sinfulness in your mind, then be encouraged. What awaits you? What awaits God's people? Your mind won't be worn out. Your knowledge won't be divided and, and, and distracted. won't be limited or obscured. You'll be face to face with the fountain of all knowledge. But we should also know that if you're not trusting in Christ as your Savior, then you need to know that God fully knows you too. He knows every wicked thought, every corrupt and selfish motive, every covetous intention, every jealous glance, every bitter feeling. He knows all of them. He sees each one of them. And not a single one of them will be left out of his mind when you see him face to face. In fact, those that have rejected God in this age will see Him face to face and He will recount every one of those sins. They will be read. All of your darkness, your shameful actions, thoughts, and feelings, all of them will be trotted out as evidence of your just condemnation. You are now fully known and then you will likewise be fully known to all. But you don't have to let that be the case. God has provided in Christ a way of escape. The God of love has provided a sacrifice of love for all those that would come to Him. And simple faith is all that's required. Childlike faith. Trust in the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. His blood was sufficient to save the worst of sinners. And His love is more than enough to overcome the hardest of hearts. Don't wait to see Him face to face as your judge. You can come to Him now by faith. So that when you do see him face to face, it's as his bride, not as his enemy. Faith is all that's needed because now is the age of faith. Hope in Christ is all that's required because now is the age of hope. That's part of what verse 13 is getting at. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest is love. Now is the age of faith and hope and love. These three are necessary now. Faith is what, it ties itself to what God has revealed. It, it agrees to, it assents to what God has revealed. And hope attaches itself to something promised in the future. It, it awaits with anticipation the revealing of God's promises. But love, love is superior to even these divine graces. Because love continues forever. Faith and hope, they will be fulfilled. When the perfect comes, they'll not be needed. In heaven, faith will be swallowed up in vision. We won't have to believe anymore when the object of belief is there in front of us. It's in our possession. Hope itself will be swallowed up when the fruition of the thing that we've been hoping for is right there. We won't have to hope anymore. There's no room to believe and to hope when we see, enjoy, and taste the reality. And so in that sense, faith and hope are temporary. But love, 
Love flows from God's own divine perfection, and within us it produces love. Love to God and love to those who are made in His image. And it will last forever. Let me close with a wonderful quote from an old commentator describing this perfect state and the love that will be found therein. He says that love to God and love to those made in His image will shine forth in the most glorious splendors in another world, and there love will be made perfect. There we shall perfectly love God because He will appear to us perfectly lovely forever, and our hearts will kindle at the sight and glow with perpetual devotion. And there we shall perfectly love one another when all the saints meet there, when none but saints are there, and every saint is made perfect. Oh, such a blessed state. How surpassing the best of states here below. How beautiful and excellent the grace of His love. How much does it exceed the most valuable gift when it outshines every grace, and it is the everlasting consummation of them. You see, when faith and hope are at an end, True love will burn forever with the brightest flame. And note also that those hearts which are fullest of this divine principle of love border most upon the heavenly state of perfection. Love is the purest offspring of God and it bears His most lovely impression because God is love. And where God is to be seen as He is and face to face, their love in its greatest height will be perfected. This is the realm. This is the promise that awaits us. And this is what we anticipate every time we gather. Indeed, every time we come to the Lord's table. We have in this meal, this meal of love, a symbol. The meal in Scripture signifies the absence of hostilities. It signifies relationship and love. And all these do we possess through the sacrifice of Christ. And so if you're part of Christ's bride and you're united in good standing with the gospel-preaching church, then we, are, we welcome you to this table, this table of love. Today, you fellowship with Him really and truly, but at a distance, and this meal is a foretaste. It's a reminder, an encouragement, pointing us all on towards the heavenly meal, a meal of love, where you will dine with Him face to face. And so ponder that day. Let it stir you in your hearts. Stir up devotion as we await this heavenly revealing. I'll pray in a moment, and then we'll proceed row by row, starting in the front, working our way to the back, coming to the middle, walk up front and get your elements from the plates, and then you can recess down the side aisles. And if you're unable to get up, we're going to have someone walking around with a plate who would be happy to serve you the elements as well. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love of Christ, which is displayed in this table before us. Take these elements and use them to build up your church. Stir within us affections of love. Help us to remember and to linger upon the glorious promises of what awaits us when the perfect comes and we will see fully. We will see you face to face. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.